Hello, and thanks once again for joining us for episode 24 of Practically Ranching. I'm your host, Matt Perrier, and today's guest is Lamar Steiger. Lamar works as a consultant for Walmart and, and several other companies in the beef supply chain development. Uh, Lamar advises them and advises ranchers in, in ways that we can best supply folks like Walmart and other stores with a consistent high-quality product, i.e. beef, and hopefully continue to grow that market for high-quality beef. Lamar grew up in the beef industry. I was born on ranch in Wyoming. Uh, his family then moved to Arkansas, and and Lamar has a very, very interesting perspective, not just on retail supply chains, not just on the beef industry, but on both and on all things in between. And, and Lamar takes that experience that he's had and he puts that into practice for his clients and I think quite often for us as producers as well. There'll be some things that we talk about on this podcast that'll that'll make a lot of us maybe a little uncomfortable uh, when we start talking about data and dollars tied to that, when we start talking about technologies like blockchain and RFIDs and, and a national ID program and, and using data to track beef and to track cattle and, and things like that. But it's one of those conversations that as hard as it is to, to have and to listen to, it's probably that much more important for us to think about and to position ourselves to be in the best place as we go forth in this beef industry to growing a business and, and competing with those businesses uh, around us. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Again, it's one of those that, that I looked forward to as we created Practically Ranching. And I think, uh, again, as, as much of a paradigm shift as it may be for a few of us, uh, it's a really good one to listen to. So as always, thank you for listening to Practically Ranching and enjoy our visit with Lamar Steiger. Well, Lamar, thank you for joining us here on Practically Ranching. I appreciate you being here today. Tell us where you're coming from and what you've been up to so far this morning. Hi, Matt. Uh, it's good to be with you. I'm in my office in Bentonville, Arkansas. I've lived in Bentonville since 1970, came originally down here from a ranch in Wyoming. And this morning, I had coffee with a great friend who is a part of Pioneer Bible Translators, and he is uh, raising money to translate the Bible worldwide. Wow, that's great. As many times as the Bible has been translated, you would think that we were there, but uh, obviously there are some parts of the world that still have yet to see it in their language. They are uh, within 25 or 30 years of having every language translated, largely due to technology like you and I are on today, this uh, amazing uh, technology that we get to witness in our age. Well, that, I guess, proof positive that uh, as much as sometimes technology seems to be from the devil, uh, that we can use it for good. Absolutely. I think about that often, and you're exactly right. People are figuring out how to use it for good. You're exactly right. That's good. Well, speaking of doing things for good, give us a little history about your life, and, and I guess specifically as it pertains to to the beef industry, but um, catch us up to today, and or at least the last several years, and then uh, we'll drill down a little deeper on what it is you've been doing here most recently. Okay. Well, uh, as I mentioned, we were our family was originally from Northeast Wyoming. My grandfather uh, had bought a uh, pretty good sized cattle ranch in the Black Hills back in the early 1900s, and then my dad was raised uh, going out there from Wisconsin every summer. And after World War II, he took it over and. My dad was one of the very first guys in the country to use uh, technology and the beef business. He was a original founder of uh, beef improve or not beef improvement, but the predecessor to beef improvement. The uh, God, the initials I can't remember, Probably but he also was BCIA. Does that sound it. familiar? You're exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then he was one of the first guys to use. Uh, AI, uh, artificial insemination, and uh, he used uh, Charlet and, and uh, Limousine and Simmental way back in the early 60s and kind of played around with all that and decided he liked the Charlet cattle and changed his horned Hereford uh, herd from 
from that to Charlet. We moved to, uh, he was in a really bad farm accident, Matt, in 1966. He got his leg, he stepped in a, accidentally stepped in, tripped and fell into an auger at the base of a harvest store. And uh, he survived, but his knee and his, uh, it really hurt after that. The cold weather was pretty hard on him. And so 1970, we moved south and bought a little ranch outside of Bentonville, Arkansas, and started to build our ranch here in Arkansas just about the same time that Walmart was building up from almost nothing to what they are today. So I've lived on this same ranch that he bought for 50, almost 53 years, Matt, and um, and uh, have w- watched uh, Walmart grow up and and my my father-in-law was one of the senior executives at Walmart and so kind of had a kind of had a front row seat as I traveled with him. He also owned owned a Black Angus Ranch uh, Jack's Ranch, which is yep, based here sure. in Bentonville. And I ran Jack's Ranch during the 80s and 90s and and I got to travel with him as he built Walmart and uh, he and the team built Walmart and and then he retired and traveled the world uh, consulting in retail and he actually helped a young man, or man my age, young man, uh, in two thousand. We're going to go with that. In the early two thousands, a guy named Greg Foran uh, in merchandising and retail. And when Greg became the uh, CEO of Walmart US in uh, the early teens, two thousand thirteen, fourteen, somewhere in there, Greg asked me to come and help him to help uh, Walmart with their uh, their beef supply chain. And so I used to say that I was a rancher who got involved in the supply chain of beef. And now I say I'm kind of a supply chain lunatic who happens to have a ranch as well. And so I have really enjoyed and been privileged to have this open door to the entire beef supply chain from genetics all the way through to the grocery counter and the the frustrations that those of us who have live animals are are often the same frustrations of the folks that are trying to sell our meat for us and so it's been fun to have that big wide view of the entire industry which i don't think a lot of us really have i've learned that uh both personally just how little i know about the other aspects of our industry um, but I think any, anywhere you go in the beef industry, there's there's varying levels of understanding, and that is in each segment. Um, I've, I've mentioned that Amy and I got the opportunity to go to the Certified Angus Beef uh, Annual Convention or Conference uh, a month or so ago. And, and in talking with those folks who process, deliver, sell our product, prepare our product, uh, you know, I think the biggest difference between them and, and us is neither of us know what the other one does day to day, but they have an incredible amount of desire to learn about our part. And I think sometimes as ranchers, we may be a little guilty of just the opposite, of not wanting to know, I shouldn't say it that way, but but not having the desire to know what it is that, that is a challenge for that chef or that retail grocery store owner or, or that packer processor for sure. And, and, um, that's, that's sometimes challenging. It's always challenging to, uh, when we can't put ourselves in their shoes to understand what it is they're going through and why they want what they want from our product or from our structure or from that supply chain you mentioned. Yeah. And you're exactly right. But, but on the other hand, I mean, there's so many of us in the cattle business, a few hundred thousand, and and sometimes you see different data on how many people own 50 cows or more and six or 700,000 for sure. There are a lot of folks that are very progressive and very much professional ranchers who really want to produce what customers want to eat. And uh, one of the early meetings that I had, Matt, with the Walmart executives, one of them who's not a not a meat guy, but he's a grocer, senior executive. He's like, Lamar, I can't think of another industry that produces a product that customers don't want and that we have to like pull teeth to get actually the the products the way that the customer wants them. Hmm. And there's so much of what we produce in this business that is not what the customers are asking for. Uh, but yet, because of those com- those different interests, different incentives for different parts and different segments of our supply chain, it's in their best interest along the supply chain to 
to do things that are not necessarily in the best interest of the grocer and his ability to sell his or her ability to sell sell the meat the customers want. So when you talk about producing things that the consumer or the customer doesn't want, be specific. Yeah. What is it? You're so I think about? I think the best example is, and I've worked with with Walmart now for quite a while, but I've also been exposed to grocers worldwide and uh, and had the chance to to sit at the table with a lot of different folks that are in that end of the industry. And I think the one that's the most obvious that's so hard to try to to figure out is the size of these carcasses. And so, you know, when I take a Walmart executive to a purebred uh, a purebred sale and auction for bulls and the auctioneer is pounding the table saying, or the, the, his desk up there and he's pounding it and saying, Hey, look at the size of this ribeye. Look at this ribeye EPD. It's huge. Like this is fantastic. This ribeye. Well, the, the American consumers love a huge ribeye at a high end steak house. And when I go to a city and I get to go to one of these fabulous steakhouses, then by golly, I'm hoping that my tomahawk and my ribeye is so impressive that I take a picture and put it on Instagram. But yet the grocer consumer, the consumer that's out there buying beef uh, from the grocery store week after week after week, can't afford a ribeye that's that big unless that ribeye is cut so thin. And so what the problem is with the grocers is that this ribeye will come in so big that uh, in order to meet the price point that that particular grocer, and whether that's like a Whole Foods or an HEB or a Walmart, whatever it is, all those grocers know what price point their customers are willing to pay. And at what price point it goes over that they're not willing to pay, which is really hurtful to their business. And so in order to meet that, since meat is sold by the pound, then what they have to do is they have to have their case ready facilities cut that ribeye thinner and thinner. And then I call it, uh, Matt, I call it cooking abuse is that, <laughs> that there are a lot of folks that take a steak home. And I have been to my friend's houses where they throw a steak on the grill. And I'm like, holy smokes, like, let me take that off now. And I, but you kind of hold your tongue, right? You don't, you don't get into another guy's grilling his be, world, but be respectful, but Lamar. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of cooking abuse that goes on, and it's especially that way on thin thin cuts. And so, you know, the the ribeyes that the the folks that want at um, at at a Walmart and other mainline grocery stores are a lot smaller than the ribeyes that are coming off. And so that competing interest and in, and in incentive is the Packers. They make more money on bigger carcasses, right? Sure. I mean, they sure. they get paid more, and then all, throughout this entire supply chain, we buy and sell our cattle on weight, and so uh, and so until the incentives are changed, you know, then it's just a real frustration for the grocers when they have to figure out what to do with these ribeyes that are too big for the trade. Like Walmart doesn't have butchers in their in their stores, and so they have case-ready plants around the country that they either own or that they contract with that puts that that meat on a on a tray a styrofoam tray styrofoam until they come up with something better sure uh but oftentimes i mean those those ribeyes are so big that they kind of go over the edge of the ribeye and customers look at that and they just don't buy it they just don't buy it so then not only is the customer not buying at retail but then the, the retailer has to mark it down on day three or four in the store. And so they're taking a loss beyond the fact that it didn't sell at retail. Now they have to take a loss on it to get it to get it sold. And so it's just this continual cycle of, of, of just dysfunction, really. So from a retailer's standpoint, you would say that the number one or at least one of the drivers of things that consumers don't want are big ribeyes. Yeah. So, and that speaks to uh, bigger than just ribeyes. It's con- yeah, it's, but they would love to have consistency in the size, okay. consistency in the size. And so, uh, you know, one, one of the merchants told me that when we high, when we buy shirts, flannel shirts, that we order X number of thousands, hundreds of thousands of larges. And that company does not ship us extra smalls <laughs> and extra larges when we order large, large. Right. And so, and so it's this, it's just this real issue that we have with inconsistency in the size of our, the size and the quality of our product. And so a merchant puts in an order with, 
with his packing plant partner. And the packing plant partner, I'm sure, is trying their best to fill that order, which would be a certain size of a cut of steak that fits in the tray with a certain thickness. But then as those cattle come in and they're all different sizes and they're all different uh, different uh, consistencies of quality and, 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 and again, size and, and all, then those packers have to do the best they can to fill that order. But because our industry is so uh, broad and de- deep and wide on all kinds of different sizes, all kinds of different types of cattle, all kinds of different uh, different ways that cattle are fed and brought in. It's really hard to meet the consumer's demand. And uh, just recently, I was with some grocers that were talking about in this time uh, of economic uncertainty and inflation, customers that buy beef, they better be getting a premium product of beef. And if they're disappointed in that beef, then they will switch out to a cheaper protein next time and probably until the recession is, or whatever this economic time that we're in, uh, until this thing straightens out. Because uh, if they are gonna pay for beef prices, then they uh, fully expect to be fully satisfied with a great cut of meat. And when they're not, they just switch out. It's the market and it's what we should expect. I mean, if we're consumer focused, we need to realize that, yeah, they're going to vote with those dollars. And it's been really good, the fact that they voted with those dollars over the last decade or two and proven that they want premium beef and they're willing to pay a premium price. But when the economics turn down and or when... Um, when we miss the mark on what it is they're expecting, then yeah, there's, there's going to be a consequence. And and we've always known that, uh, they're going to, they're going to trade to something else. And it sounds like instead of trading to a little cheaper cut of beef or a lower grade or a non-branded type program, um, they may be trading clear outside of the, outside of the species. And that's, that's not good for any of us as farmers and ranchers. Yeah, so, uh, oft, oftentimes when I bring this up about the size of the ribeye people, and just this happened to me last week uh, when I was traveling with some uh, merchants and some folks from New Zealand, and, and we were in New York, and they were like, "Why don't Why don't you just cut the ribeye, cut the spinalis off the ribeye, and then you'll get that. You can get it smaller, you can get it thicker." But the merchants tell me that if a ribeye doesn't look like a ribeye, uh, and the spinalis is cut off, they switch to pork chop. Wow. And so the customers kind of know what they want when they see it. And uh, they can't. It's interesting, Matt. I, I often find that customers can't explain to us what they want. But when they look at a shelf of meat and they can pick out the one that they want, but they really can't articulate it is what it is they're looking for. But if it doesn't look like a ribeye uh, and uh, the merchants that I work with have tried to cut the spinalis off to get that cut smaller so that they, they could cut it thicker and and, ha, and, they, and hopefully then provide that customer with a better eating experience. But the customer just uh, just abandoned that product altogether. Yeah, I remember some retail meat consumer purchase data. I can't remember exactly what they call this, but basically they interviewed consumers, asked them what they wanted to buy, and then mapped that over what was actually in their cart and that they actually purchased at the at the counter, and it was rarely the same. You know, they'd say one thing and then they'd go do another. But that's interesting. You know, I for the longest time I was of the mind that if it makes more economic sense and it's more efficient to produce bigger ribeyes, heavier carcasses, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, just split the ribeye. And obviously it's not as easy as cutting it in half, but you know, there's a lot of work being done on new product development and things to to trim that spinalis off, which is being done and and at food service is worth an immense amount of money, higher way higher than just the ribeye would be. And then you have what's left as I think a lot of times they'll call it the rib fillet or something like that. Restaurants and, and chefs can can sell that and can tell that story. It's a little tougher when, like you said, it looks about like a pork chop. So why wouldn't I just buy a half-price piece of meat here? And so I hadn't thought about that. In the retail case, it's, it is harder to tell that story and why yeah. we're doing what we're doing. Yeah, I think the, the big supermarket chains are, are not the place to convince customers of new products. Hmm. Uh, you know, and, and they can do a little bit of that. But uh, 
But if we're going to re-educate, let's say, or, or not re-educate, let's just say educate customers on beef, which I think most of them are not at all uh, educated. And I and that's not the grocer's fault. I think that's our fault as an industry. And uh, if we're going to do that, I think it starts, as you said, with restaurants and butcher shops. And, and then once something gets popular, then the mega grocery stores uh, can take that on as well. I think the tri-tip is a great example of that is, you know, 30 years ago, tri-tip was this cool thing that was only happening in California. And, right. and uh, I knew an Oklahoma rancher who had moved from California and he always did this tri-tip thing. And it was like, oh, this is so awesome. This is so much fun when we'd go visit him. And now, you know, I think probably anywhere and everywhere you have tri-tip. But that's a long process, and it doesn't solve the problem that the merchants, the grocers have today. Yeah, as an aside, uh, the flat iron steak is something that's interesting to me. You know, that was pieced out, I think, as part of, part of NCBA's um, new product development, gosh, 20 years ago. And, and uh, that was one, at least on a regional scale. We've got Dillon's stores here in Kansas. They're owned by Kroger. But Dillon's would have probably once or twice a month, they would feature flat iron steaks. And uh, I mean, at a good price, and they would sell the tar out of them, truckload after truckload. I've noticed post pandemic, and I actually had a neighbor of mine ask, why can't I buy a flat iron at Dillon's anymore? And I would presume, and you may know this from working with different, uh, different clients, I would presume that's a labor situation in the plant. And they have said, we don't have enough people to get these cattle processed. That takes a lot of extra knife work. Uh, the flat iron is probably still being part of that roast that, that it had been for decades or centuries and not being cut out. Or at least it looks like Dylan's stores aren't, aren't featuring that like they used to. Well, and I think that's one example. But in general, I think that that ever, all the merchants and all the restaurants, they had to use the, they, during the pandemic, they had to simplify I mean, sure. you really had to simplify your supply chain and and things that were new and upcoming or things that you wanted to try all probably got on put on hold. And maybe as we come out of all that and they get their labor situation straightened out and and all, maybe we can get back back to that. But I think that just goes to show that even with developing new products from our existing carcass, that when push comes to shove and when t things get tight, customers kind of have their basics go to. And uh, and they may have things outside of the basics that they might go to at a butcher shop or at a restaurant. But when they go into a Dillon's or a Kroger, Safeway, Walmart, H-E-B, they they pretty well are, you know, they, they know what they want. And they're pretty simple in, in the cuts that they know and, and appreciate. And that makes sense. I, I think some of our listeners that are listening to this podcast on back of a horse or in a pickup or something else would say, yeah, I get it. I mean, you look at input prices and the drought and some things like that we're we're going back to basics and a lot of uh, a lot of the management techniques that we're using the cow calf and, and feed yard world as well just just to try to make sure that we can do as much as we can with with um, with what we have yep so let's go back after we have figured out that consumer preference on on ribeye size let's say for instance and like you said, if they make that major purchase of a ribeye steak, get it home, and it doesn't meet their expectations, they may trade down. What is the next level after, as you said, consistency of size in the ribeye, for instance, or all any of these cuts of, of, of beef that they're buying? What's their next level of did we meet expectations or not? Yeah, and this one is, I think, interesting. It's I, I I'm... I work with grocers and merchants. I'm not. I'm not at the front table, but at the front counter. But I do know the next thing that I hear them talk about a lot is, uh, and what's really important to like my friends at Walmart is the eating experience. Okay. And so, eating experience would would probably, I, I think, what they mainly are talking about there is a tenderness and a taste, which is enough marbling. And, uh, and, and I'll just jump in there with uh, something I don't want to be overly critical of the meat supply chain, because I think guys, Matt, like your family and others that are in the genetics end of this business have done an amazing job uh, over the last 20 years of really improving the eating experience for, for vast numbers of cattle 
that go through the supply chain that was not there. And it goes to the intensity that you've done and, and, and those of us in the purebred business have done with, uh, with genetics and EPDs and then adding genomics and really sharpening the pencil on the number of cattle that, that, uh, that grade uh, upper two thirds choice and, and even better. And that has really improved the eating experience across the board. Uh, and so it's not all doom and gloom. I don't want to come across as saying that's what the customer or the uh, the grocers are saying, but it's when that is not when those pieces are inconsistent that don't fit the eating experience that um, that the customer is asking the merchants for. And quite often that that eating experience, like you said, it's it's based off tenderness and taste. Yes, and and then again, it goes back to the cooking experience yeah, and, and whether yeah. somebody somebody can cook a cook, cook meat well or not, you know? So, um, not, not so well, that's another fact, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> especially, uh, yeah, especially not when it's a half inch thick. Yeah. And, and I've heard it said before, I think we all have that quite often for that consumer, that's not able to cook it just right. Marbling is not only a taste attribute, but it's an insurance policy. If you've got enough marbling in there, they can go a little too far. They can get to 150 or hopefully not 160 degrees doneness, and it's it's not going to be complete shoe leather. Um, it would have been a whole lot better at 135 or 140. But um, you know that that is a bit of an insurance policy to basically help lubricate that beef that was probably cooked a little too far. So that yeah, that's and then, one nice thing. And then the next one I would add on there is price. And so, okay. so when you have price, eating experience, and, uh, and size, uh, then those three things come together. Then customers uh, choose our product over pork, and they choose our product over chicken. And and as I've watched the industry over my entire lifetime, and especially in the la- last few years, I really am a big believer that we can solve a lot of the problems that we're having of bringing uh, the carcasses up through the chain all the way through to grocer with data. It's that the, the, the industries that win are the ones that figure out how to get rid of the, the, like if you look at a bell curve, you, you kind of cut down on both ends of the bell curve and you get more and more of those cattle that fit the upper two thirds choice. And that's really kind of where, customers, whether they shop at Walmart or HEB, that's where they kind of do their bread and butter beef shopping is upper two thirds choice. Now you might buy prime when you're having a special guy's night. Like I have some really good friends that I, some young men I mentor in their thirties and they'll find that, uh, that, uh, tomahawk ribeye at, in, in a blue tray at Walmart, which is prime. And they'll send pictures to me and they're having four or five of their best friends over and they're going to have this big steak cookout. But upper two thirds choice is kind of the middle of the bell curve of what we what we really want. And in order to do away with the, 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 the end that's not so good and to know which ones are the ones that are better is we we really and I'm just hoping that we as an industry will start adopting uh, the uh, the tools that it takes in order to track data. And and what that really starts with is EID tags or or there's some new technology that may be out there where they can photograph individual cattle and and uh, do facial recognition. I've, I've read some, met some people that are working on that and, and whether it's nose prints or EID or whatever it is, is we as an industry need to kind of go back and, and realize that if we can individually track cattle and we can individually then add to that genetics that are in that cattle eventually, this is all way out there. And I know it's really hard for a lot of us to, to get our minds around, but those are the tools that are going to help us to narrow down the outliers that don't appeal to the customers. And, um, you know, when we, when I travel around the country and speak to groups and I talk about individual ID and all, it reminds me so much of when I traveled with my father-in-law, Matt, in the early eighties, my father-in-law came up with the idea for the barcode. And he was a senior Walmart executive. He was president of Walmart. And he and he came up with this idea and he got together with a supplier that made hosiery. They went to MIT and they told those scientists at MIT, we don't know what we want, but we want something that we can track items individually by the box. 
And, uh, and when they rolled that technology out, it's very familiar to what I hear about EID. Well, the rancher has to pay for it. Well, we don't get our cattle in and work them that off. We don't, there's all these obstacles and challenges to, to individual ID of cattle, but the win on that on, on barcode was efficiencies that were unimaginable in 1981 when he started traveling the country and by sheer force of his personality, he was a big guy with a big personality sure. by sheer force of his big personality. He really drove barcode. And, and I can remember standing in line with him at a ski lift. And he said, someday, uh, you know, you're going to go through a ski lift line and you're going to do a barcode. And we were like, my wife was like, dad, that's the silliest thing, you know, I've ever heard. And he was a visionary for this. And so I just, I think we're just a, a dec few decades behind the rest of all supply chains. Every supply chain in the world is becoming where they can either track and trace it by lot number, uh, like like a pallet of lettuce, uh, where they can track and trace it through the box, through a barcode, and now the QR code. And we as an industry, if we can figure out how to do that, it will pay dividends long term. Now, it may seem painful, just like the folks, the folks that were producing Kleenex for Walmart or producing paper towels. And they were like, we're not going to go to the expense of putting a barcode on this box. Like, this is not, we're just not going to. And he was like, no, you will. And I think if we don't, as an industry, Matt, embrace getting a handle on what our supply chain really is and fixing the problems along the way, I think eventually it'll be forced on us by the grocers. And the grocers will just say, hey, in our supply chain, we're going to want to know more than we know now. And that starts with track and tracing. And I, I, I think I probably got off on a rant here, but I just think it's so important to solve the problems that we were talking about at the grocery end. Well, don't apologize for the rant, because as I've said before, that's where the best discussions usually take place, at least on this podcast. <laughs> and, and I think anyplace else, if we're really honest. So you mentioned the logistics challenges of, of, let's just narrow it down to RFID because everybody knows what one is. A lot of people are at least using it in some way, shape or form or, or familiar with it. Um, I, my opinion, and it has been since we started talking about some form of a universal identification program for beef cattle 20 years ago, by the way. I mean, I was going to these meetings in 2001 when I worked for the Angus Association, and we are the same roadblocks then that we're hearing now. Uh, the logistical challenge is at some point that calf is either going to be roped or he's going to be through a chute before he leaves that ranch of origin. 90% of the cattle, I think, today are. So uh, I think the logistical challenges are not insurmountable. I think where we run into a roadblock, as you have mentioned and and, and made analogous to the barcode scans and the suppliers to Walmart or anyone else that was saying, we'd like you to do this. It is, what information am I giving up? And so I guess I'd, I'd ask you that question, both, what are the biggest, put your cowboy hat back on, put, put yourself in, in your dad's place in Wyoming as he is adopting technologies, but going, okay, what are the downsides? What are the risks here? So from a producer standpoint, what are the risks that you see there? But then what are the opportunities from a producer standpoint? Not for Walmart, not for Safeway, not for Tyson, Cargill, National, whomever. Um, what are the opportunities to the beef cattle producers? And then maybe we can talk how this supply chain kind of comes together in your world. Yeah. Yeah, I fully get it. And and I understand the issues with what we're giving up and, and that there's there's fear is number one. And number two, it's kind of like privacy, right? It's like, right. I don't want everybody to know all my business. And so I think the difference now in, in the meetings that you were at in 2001, and the difference now is blockchain. And I think if you think back four or five years ago, every newspaper article had somebody financing a blockchain company, and it was exciting, and it was really cool. And this was going to be great. And then all those companies got a bunch of money and then they kind of had to try to figure out how to make it work. And so <laughs> it all went not completely silent, but you just don't hear about a lot of it going on. My son, Eli, uh, lives in Denver and he runs a blockchain team for Walmart. And they're in the process of, of tracking and tracing leafy vegetables, fruits, that kind of stuff. 
and it actually kind of works. And what it does is a blockchain would allow a rancher to identify the cattle, to identify the, uh, the data points that are important and to share them in such a way that protects their privacy and protects their, uh, the integrity of their information and how they would compare to other ranches and all. And that, that all is part of a block. And the block is, a, is, a, is data. And then permissions are giving, given to use certain amount of that data in different ways along the supply chain. And so I think the new way, and I'm not, I'm not a blockchain expert, and if my son was on the podcast, he could explain it a lot better. But the, the uh, challenges to what we, we've been talking about doing for like most of your life and most of my life, right. improving this supply chain, is, are, have been legitimately uh, legitimate challenge to ranchers. And so I think this new technology with blockchain where you can share the data that needs to be shared, but keep private who you are, and then keep private what's your own data that you don't want to share. And then on the other side, of that, then the supply chain can supply data back to you in a block where you get the actual, you get a lot more information on how your calves have done and all that's not shared publicly, that's just shared in your block, in your blockchain part of this big supply. And then you can make improvements uh, by getting rid of the bottom 10% of your cattle and really knowing which ones are the ones to call and which ones are ones you think maybe we think we should call. And so I think, I think that technology and, and it might be that you find somebody for a podcast uh, that's a blockchain um, guru that can kind of, uh, kind of explain this a little better probably than I can. Well, I think that 30,000 foot view is, is probably best for right now, but that gives us, that gives us an idea uh, up to this point, for the most part, with the exception of a few programs, if, and let's just talk about carcass data, if a cow-calf producer wants to get data back on their progeny, on their steers that they retained ownership on and sent to the feed yard, that's about the best and the only way to get that back is to own them, or at least a portion of them, all the way to the to the uh, packing processor plant. And um, today there's a few programs and you work with one, I know that, that will offer some of that data back without having skin in the game, uh, which is commendable because you know there is that risk if these cattle went up there and graded 40%, 50% prime and 100% CEB, uh, you're probably gonna own those cattle next year and, and, and uh, not let somebody else get all the good out of that. But I think there's value in that but there is a price, both buyer and seller, to not only putting that tag in and conveying and, and checking those boxes of, of what on this blockchain is shareable and with whom and what is not, but there's also, I think, value in that information to the next person who owns it, whether it's the feed yard buying those calves, whether it's the pack and processor buying those carcasses or, or cattle. Um, the retailer food service buying those cuts. There's value with that information. And I, I foresee, and I guess I'd like to get your feedback, but I foresee a day where premiums and discounts aren't necessarily assessed on the cattle or the carcass, but the information that is provided. Uh, not just what that carcass did, but maybe what last year's carcasses did when we value those feeder calves. And uh, there's some talk about that in the industry. Tell me how you see that happening in our segmented industry of today, um, where the lion's share of calves get sold at or shortly after weaning may get traded a couple times before they finally hit the feed yard, then possibly get sold on a value-based grid to the processor and parceled out and sold as, as boxed beef to whomever it is that's, that's taken it from there. Can, can blockchain and can a true value-based system assess equitably and, you know, properly assess value all the way back through that? Or are we going to need to see more and more cattle retained ownership all the way through to actually get those premiums back to the, the guy or gal who bought the bulls and raised the calves? Yeah, I think to the basic question, it's probably both. Okay. Um, my son, who's the blockchain guy, he's, he says that, that uh, being in a blockchain will be your permission to do business with a supply chain. 
And so being outside of permission or outside of a supply chain will be a bigger cost, I think, eventually down the road. I think that'll be a bigger cost than the cost of participating, whatever that is, with uh, with whatever technology and whatever record keeping that you have to do in order to be a part of a supply chain. And and so, um, the, the you know, it's just so much like the barcode. There's a cost to printing that on the boxes. There's a pro- cost to keeping all that up. But without that, today, you don't get to be a part of a supply chain. I mean, there's there's nobody that's going to buy your product uh, in a cardboard box shipped over from China or manufactured wherever without a barcode on it. Right. And so and so I think that's that's the cost is the cost is worse by not participating in a supply chain and not trying to get on board with trying to help figure out how to get the customers what they want. And so there's a whole nother factor that that plays into this is that the American consumer not only wants premium, but they want the grocery store, they want their merchant to know where that meat comes from. And, and they want them to know all the steps along the way, as far as what it, what was done to that from everything from humane handling of that product to which could be the, your ranch is BQA certified could be a part of the information in that block and how, how else would that be kept up through the supply chain that you as a rancher were BQA certified if uh, we're not recording that in some way in a blockchain or in some way along along the supply chain? And consumers, uh, they want to know the animal uh, welfare. They want to know what antibiotics the animals have had. They want to know what if they've had growth hormones. They want to know all these things. And and they don't necessarily want to know all the way back to individual ranchers, Matt. They want to, they, what we've discovered is that they want to know that their merchant, that their grocery store knows. Hmm. And so, uh, so the grocers are trying to figure out how do they build the trust of their supply chain uh, so that they can look their, their customer in the eye and they say, we know that our animal were blank at, let's say Angus sired, that they did not have hormone implants which whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or not really doesn't matter. What matters Perception. is what customers customers want, right? And and uh, every everybody that manufactures anything probably has a product that they would love to sell one way, but customers want it in another way. And so you know, smart smart producers grow or produce products that customers actually want you're describing this, the whole thought of consumers not necessarily knowing the individual place that this animal came off of, but know that their supplier, Walmart, Costco, Dillon, Safeway, knows where it came from. And that's enough. Uh, I chuckle because a number of years ago, 10 years ago, I think, Amy and I got the opportunity to go out and work with a small but a very progressive retail chain called Stu Leonard's out in uh, New Jersey, into New York, and and, um, and Stu was great and is great today at going to the locations where at least some of his product is coming. So he'd go get a picture in a strawberry patch in California. He'd go get an, a picture in a feedlot or in the Flint Hills of Kansas where most of his beef that he was sourcing from a packer that just had two plants in, in uh, Kansas. And he would put that in these huge murals on top of the beef case and and show Stu right out there with the cows in Kansas to say, I'll only buy Kansas cattle. Well, we all laughed because we said, well, that's bogus. You know, those calves could be coming from the Texas Panhandle. They could be coming from South Dakota. May have been fed in Kansas, may not have been, but he was buying from a plant in Kansas, two plants actually, and so that was good enough. We just thought, well, this is crazy. Well, guess what? For the last several decades, Stu has been doing exactly what your data is showing, that that as long as somebody in that supply chain that that consumer trusts, trusts other people and can back it up with data, um, that may be good enough, right? Yep. Yeah, so... um... When a grocer has a high level of trust, for instance, like Stu Leonard, and I've been in a one of those, a couple of those grocery stores, and just last week I was in New York and was able to go to a few really high end grocers uh, in the in Manhattan and and around that that area, and those customers 
they have such a high level of trust of that grocer that the grocer really, in a lot of ways, doesn't have to, to claim a lot of attributes. Like there was no, nobody that I visited last week had an antibiotic, I mean, a, a, yeah, a never ever product in their grocery chain. Nobody was making that claim at all. And the reason they didn't have to make that claim for never ever is because they already have a high level of trust of their customers and they know their customer. Now you think about a grocer like Walmart who has 4,500 grocery stores. They didn't have any grocery stores around 1990 and they, they got into the grocery business and by the early 2000s, they were the largest grocer in the, in the country. And you don't go to 4,500 stores in 12 or 13 years with high quality beef, probably. There, number one, there weren't enough butchers. Wasn't enough, yeah. Uh, you know, and then Walmart doesn't hire a union, and so most of those butchers are union. And so they brought in Case Ready, which the United States market was not probably ready for Case Ready, but Walmart did it anyway. And and uh, and so they, they have 4,500 stores of meat, but not a very good reputation. And when Greg, uh, my friend, from uh, New Zealand, Australia, that my father-in-law had trained when he took over Walmart USA, he was like, okay, we're going to start building a better reputation so that our customers will trust us. Well, since they had maybe not such a good, or as one of the executives said, we had a, a well-deserved bad reputation in beef. That was 10 years ago to eight, nine, 10 years ago. Well, I remember it, the Thomas E. Wilson specs. And so I would say there may be a little bit of just a quality benchmark that they raised this time because that absolutely. that stuff wasn't very good <laughs> and they pumped meat and, and yeah and yeah. all but it, it was a different time it wasn't the foodie you know we're in this foodie That's generation true. of yep. like sure so you know it was a different time and you had a different customer base and all that kind of but you know and you can't go back and beat up merchants who did things for a reason and they were able to make it work but they wanted to build a better reputation in meat and so since they had a lower reputation in meat then they we started implementing a lot of new a lot of new attributes that people knew and recognized and so one of the first things walmart did was they sent the word to the packers that they wanted angus sired and all the new specs had in the contracts that they were going to be angus sired and part of the reason for that is is, uh, you know, and I grew up in the Charlet business. I mean, people tell me all the time that's, you know, why doesn't Walmart expand this? Well, if they're trying to narrow down the inconsistencies in the product and you have 4,500 stores, there's so many more Angus cattle than there are any others. And you can narrow down the inconsistencies by choosing one breed. And so they chose Angus, which has a great reputation, thanks to the American Angus Association and CAB. And, and so they've started asking in their, in their black trade program, which is upper two thirds choice. That was eight or nine years ago that they started asking for Angus sired. And then uh, we brought in a, a help them bring in a supply chain uh, for 500 stores or a few more than 500 stores down in the Southeast. And, and they tried and they said, okay, not only Angus sired, but non-hormone added because customers were telling them that that was important to them. And so they're tracking all those sales all the way through. They're seeing like, do customers really respond to non-hormone added and, and they'll they they make their decisions on the future based on the things that customers are telling them, and so you know you just keep increasing your attributes, or is that what Walmart kept increasing their attributes? And they actually now have a pretty good reputation in red meat. I'm on airplanes all the time. I love to ask people where they buy their meat, and more and more, I'm sitting next to people that are like, you know, we tried, we were we were at a Walmart and we tried this Walmart black tray and. And it was really, really good. And I'm just hearing that more and more. And I know that's anecdotal, Matt. I mean, it's, but, but Walmart analyzes more data probably than anybody, maybe except the U.S. government. And they, they are tracking the pulse of the American consumer in beef and in everything they sell every single day. And when they, they know what price points that consumers will pay, they know what price points they won't pay. They know when a product is not up to snuff that, that, consumers don't buy a second time they might buy once but they don't buy again uh, they know that when a consumer is unhappy and they 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 obviously are unhappy because maybe they bought like beef three weeks in a row and then they went six weeks without buying beef they don't know who you are but they can kind of track you based on credit card use and stuff like that but they're not tracking individually who you are they're just tracking you know buying habits 
Well, I would say if they went six weeks without buying beef, that would add to their unhappiness. So uh, we need to find a way. (laughs) And the other other humorous thing I thought as you were saying that the only entity that may look at data more than Walmart's federal government, I, I think Walmart probably is a little more accurate with their at least interpretation sometimes <laughs> from the data. Well, they're, I think they're trying anyway. And they, they, it just, it's just so, uh, so cool for me, Matt, as I've been able to go and be behind the door at a lot of these Walmart meetings is that my father-in-law and Sam Walton and those guys were singularly focused on customers. It was like, what can we do? So to, to help customers save money so they can live better. And if you look at the Walmart slogan, they adopted that about maybe eight or 10 years ago where they went back and listened to all of Sam Walton's speeches and they watched him on the old VHS and all that kind of stuff. And they kind of pulled out, what did he talk about the most? And he talked about saving money so that people could live better. And when I go to a Walmart meeting today and there's young buyers that are in the middle of a meeting and they're like, so how does this help the consumer? What is this doing for the consumer? And they ultimately are so focused on the consumer. And it just brings me great pleasure to see that here we are. Walmart's a 60-year-old company, and they are still singularly focused on the customers. Yeah, and that's that's the thing that gets lost. And I'm not going to turn this into a Walmart commercial. But I (laughs) do respect um, that's the thing that gets lost. Walmart gets such a bad rap on so many different levels. But... What they did was basically stymie inflation once they came in and kept consumer goods, in my opinion, largely from from increasing. In fact, decreased costs of that. Now, did it make it harder for the mom and pop retailer? Yes. Did it make it tougher on some of the suppliers to uh, become more efficient or get out of the business? Yes. But, I mean, when you put that much pressure on a system, on a supply chain, actually things do get better and it's the beneficiary of it in addition to, let's be honest, in addition to the folks that own Walmart and and work for Walmart, but the beneficiary is largely the consumer because they can buy hopefully more consistent, as you said, goods at a a cheaper price. Uh, The one thing that I will also say is that if anyone listening ever gets a chance to go to Bentonville, Arkansas, and they haven't already, go through the Walmart Museum. And I had never been. Your brother Carl had had told me about it. You suggested it once or twice. And I thought, oh, you know, another corporate museum. To me, if you're a capitalist and you're anywhere involved in an entrepreneurship or business, um, it's inspiring. It really is. And granted, yeah, it's told from the from the perspective of the Walton family and and the Walmart company but but it really is an impressive thing that Sam Walton and Mr. Shoemaker and everyone else did in those early days to be able to to make that work so backing up as I so often do I heard thousands of people out here in podcast land yelling at me as you talked about all these data points and all of this improved consistency and all these things how are you going to pay me to do this? How are you going to pay me to share this data? How are you going to pay me to improve whatever, the the consistency in my ribeye size and the marbling of, of my cattle? And granted, there are some places at the packer level, if you're selling cattle on a value-based type of grid, that reward producers for that. But rank and file commercial cow-calf producer that's listening to this podcast, what's in it for them? Yeah. So when we we put together now or Walmart put together two two supply chains for their beef. And the first one was with this uh, Prime Pursuits. And it's uh, sponsored by 44 Farms, a big Angus outfit down in Texas. And and uh, over and over again, the senior Walmart executives said over and over that they were frustrated with the number of slots along the supply chain and the disconnect from the rancher to the grocer. And so over and over, the senior VP at the time was uh, was a guy, a really good merchant, Scott Neal. And Scott over and over said, we want the ranchers to win and we want the grocers to win. And, and the frustrations, the frustrations that the grocers have with the supply chain 
are the very same frustrations that ranchers have. And so they are pretty committed in their two supply chains that they're one is developed and one that they're just developing uh, where they just bought into a partial ownership in the Nebraska sustainable beef plant up in uh, up in Nebraska, as they're really very committed to having everyone along the way make enough that that it, we can help to take out the fluctuations in the supply chain. And so, and so, you know, over and over again, I've witnessed here living in Bentonville, all kinds of different supply chains that have the same issues that beef has, you know, that, well, who's going to pay for, how are we going to pay for these added costs? How can we pay for this? And suppliers uh, that are based here in Bentonville that sell everything from, you know, shampoo to Coca-Cola, they just are moan and groan about the fact that they have these added costs when there are these things that were required by the consumers to do a better job with a more consistent product at a great value. And, uh, and those are the same folks that are still making just as much money or more money than they ever did because the efficiencies will more than pay for the cost of doing these programs. And we mentioned it before a little while ago, but it's going to be, I, I believe, and, and, and folks around Bentonville uh, say the same thing, that your permission to be in, a, in, in, the, in the beef supply chain is going to be a, a requirement to participate in the technologies that are out there and their technologies are coming. And I really think, Matt, the technologies will get better and better, that we're going to figure out some lower cost methods to track and trace animals. And, and I was at the Ag Tech Summit out in San Francisco I think that was last March. Maybe it was March. I think it was just this last March. And it's unbelievable the number of brilliant people for, that have helped develop Google and they've helped develop Microsoft. They've helped develop apps and all that were at this meeting in San Francisco. And they're looking at agriculture and they're saying, this is the last great frontier. There's, yeah. I guess there's two great last great frontiers, mining and mm -hmm. agriculture are the two of the last to be digitalized. And the digitalization, the technology embracing of really, really smart people that are developing all this, all this new tools that will help us to do a better job of tracking and tracing and improving our supply chain at about at a cost that we can afford to implement it at. And and if you just look at the way the industry is right now, then you're you're going to say this doesn't work for me. This this is really hard. But if you if if you'll join those who are trying to be visionary and trying to be a I mean, I want beef to be a big part of the American consumer in the 20s and 30s. When we get to 2032, 10 years from now, we could really have some hard, hard situation for the beef, for beef if we don't start tackling all the different, uh, all the different parts of the uh, interest and activists who are attacking our industry for one part or another. And, and like, I'm not willing to sit around and let them win is like let's develop the technologies and the supply chains that help to answer their their some of their some of their frustrations with the beef business are legitimate some of them are not legitimate but i'm i'm willing to go out there and, and be a part of the fight to try to help the beef supply chain to win 10 years from now yeah and amy and i talk a lot about telling beef's story telling farmers and ranchers story and we try to do it uh, as as producers in this industry, but it's it's ironic that it may take technology to help us better tell that story and to reward that story with with dollars for doing the right thing even better. And I think that's what this program and several of these types of programs and, and technologies hopefully enable us to do. You know, I have my thoughts on on ways that we can better price these bits of data and this these pieces of information even better than what we have today and and pass those along and and that's that would be a lot longer than an hour podcast on here and and they're rough enough that I need to talk offline with you for quite a while before we can flesh some of those things out but it's going to change and I think that's one takeaway uh we've talked about a lot of different things the last hour or so but that's the one takeaway I want our listeners to have is that it will probably look different. This is not going to be our grandfather's beef industry in the next 10 to 20 years. But without accepting and figuring out from a industry-led and producer-led standpoint of how we make these changes workable 
and profitable for us, the alternative may be to go the way of the sheep business and hardly have any market left. Even though there's demand for lamb, there's not enough infrastructure because they dug their heels in, they said we like it the way it is, and they weren't willing to get consumer focused and figure out how to work with each other in the supply chain to make a healthy business environment for all of us. And and um, what we've been doing with this commodity mentality of beef production and trying to steal a profit from the guy or gal up or down from us in that supply chain, I hate the word sustainable, but from a business and financial standpoint, that's not sustainable. And yet we've got folks that just that's all we've ever known, and that's, by gosh, what we're going to cling to, and I think it's 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 dangerous. Matt, I'm excited about what I call, I call the Excel generation. If This, okay. this group of new young uh, owners and managers, uh, and, and some of them aren't so young, but if you kind of had the Excel in junior high and high school, uh, it's second nature to you, and you're more data-driven. And those are, many of those are the ranchers that contact me and say, hey, how do I get become a part of this of this or some sort of supply chain? Because, because like, the way my dad was doing it, it's not going to work, you know? And so unless we just want to keep mortgaging the ranch against the added value that the, the billionaires are bringing when they, when they come in and buy out big ranches and they set the value at some huge amount, you just keep, you know, you just keep mortgaging that, and that doesn't seem a very sustainable or, or exciting way to, to make a living. No, it's not. And, and that's that's one part of competition, competition for land and resources that uh, I, haven't, I haven't had to deal with nearly as often as we have in the last 10 or 20 years. And uh, when that, again, when that pressure comes in for the resources that we have to have, i.e. land and, and water and things like that, uh, we don't have any other choice but to figure out how to make a healthier business model that rewards us for the hours and hours and hours we spend every day trying to, to bring beef to the marketplace. So bottom line, like I'm really hoping that we can form digital partnerships, digital cooperation. I'm not, I'm not interested in vertical, vertical integration, uh, the way that you know, a lot of us have seen the, the poultry industry go to and other other industries is I think, number one, the capital involved in the beef business is so huge that oh. I'm not worried about anybody controlling any big part of it. You know, uh, the numbers involved with just two supply chains at Walmart are just astronomical numbers that get the attention of the senior leaders and the board of directors. It's like, how much are we doing? Like, what's our <laughs> commitment here on capital? And because they have a lot of. They have a lot of ways that they can spend capital and Walmart and and I'm just so proud of them. They've chosen to invest a huge amount of money in our supply chain, trying to figure out how to bring a product to the customer that the customer wants week in, week out. Well, I appreciate that. And, and um, we may have to have you on again because on my list of, of thoughts that I would cover here, one of the question was, again, from the producer's standpoint, is having that amount of capital from Walmart healthy or scary um, for the beef industry? And, and again, we may, we may have a two-hour podcast on that question alone, but I do. I, I want to recognize your work and, and the folks that you work with, both at Walmart and, and in other segments of the supply chain, because um, as hard as it is for, for us cowboys to think about as you said, making these, forging these digital partnerships or seeing our premiums based on data and on blockchain instead of what we feel like is a good calf compared to a bad one. As hard as that is, it's relevant and it is pertinent and it is something that we, we have to stay plugged into and engaged in and ready for as, as our industry changes the way we the way we buy and sell and, and merchandise and, and place value on, on cattle and beef. And, and, you know, Matt, seriously, it's kind of the way the rest of the world works. I know, <laughs> I know, but we've always been cowboys, Lamar. I know, I know, uh, I know, but we, I, I just really hope that we, we start, we continue to improve our, our crops where people where we're producing the products that people want. Yeah. And, and again, I think, 
we've done a lot in the last 20 years, and it's largely due to families like yours. Well, I appreciate that, and, and I think we will. I, I think that uh, what we've seen and change is is only the beginning, and, and we've learned, I think, as an industry to adapt to that. It's never easy. It's still not, and, and probably never will be, especially for folks in our culture. But um, But when the other option looks as bleak as what it does to opposing that change. Uh, I think, I think we'll figure out a way and, and probably be better off on the other side because of it. So, well, Lamar, thank you very much for your time. I uh, appreciate it a bunch. This is uh, this has been a great conversation. One that I know that everybody's really going to, going to like. And like I said, we didn't, uh, we didn't get through it all. I, I have a feeling that I will get uh, quite a bit of feedback on this one and, and folks saying, why didn't you ask him this or that? So uh, maybe we can come back around or maybe even talk to Eli on blockchain and, and uh, see the conversation and keep learning. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. You bet. You bet. Thank you, Lamar. It's time to invest in practical, profitable genetics from Dale Banks Angus. We'll sell 145 yearling and coming two-year-old bulls on Saturday, November 19th. They're the top end of our 2021 calf crops, bred for over a century to offer a balance of calving ease, docility, maternal excellence, carcass merit, and sound feet and legs. They're ranch-raised, freeze-branded, fertility-checked, and ready to work either this fall or next spring. Catalogs will be available in late October. Contact us today to get on the list. Videos of all bulls will be available prior to the sale. Come see us November 19th northwest of Eureka, Kansas, or bid online at cci.live. Call or text Matt Perrier at 620-583-4305 or go to dalebanks.com.